Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Hold My Dream, where we navigate the news and politics with a chaser of civility. I'm your host, Jen, inviting you to grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and imagine with us how to create a new American identity together. Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink and Counterweight podcast. This week, my co-host is W.F. Twyman Jr., also known as Wink, and we are interviewing my usual co-host, David Bernstein. And David, I'm actually, I've been thinking about this a lot because you and I talk all the time, clearly. Mm-hmm. But I've got, every time we talk, I leave with questions that I have for you. And I know Wink has some questions too. And so like to actually get to interview you, I'm really excited about this. So be ready. Thank you. Um, it's my honor. I, it, it's, it's, I'm real. yeah, like I said, I'm excited. Um, now it is the Hold My Drink podcast. You know, we always ask what we're having to drink. David and I, I think are having a, well, I don't know, David, you, I know are doing like the low carb thing in January. So you said mm-hmm. you may not be Still drinking. Still am. Okay, are you are you drink? I mean, there are low carb drinks. Are you drinking in January? Yeah, um, not much alcohol. You know me, especially at this time. So I I went with my true to form diet Coke. Uh, don't think you can <laughs> oh, cool! Yourself. Very cool. So, so yeah. Okay. All right, and and wink. More what elaborate. about you? Did you? I actually have a celebratory drink. Uh, I have Ooh. a glass of champagne. It is uh, Doctor Martin Luther King's birthday. It he is. was born on January fifteenth. It so, is. That is. To... Oh, I'm a, I'm very jealous, Wink. So I don't know that you know this. David knows this. I'm having a dry January. Okay. Um, what I've done in lieu of alcohol, and it's been, I have to say, it's been fine, whatever, except for on the weekends, because I really like look forward to on the weekends sitting down with a glass of wine. Sure, sure. But I have become a tea connoisseur. <laughs> oh, good. So I'm drinking, I've got a chocolate rooibos, roy, oh. like a chai. Um, mm-hmm. So yes, I have like traded out my wine connoisseurship um, to a tea connoisseurship and it's going okay. Like I said, on the weekends, it kind of kind of sucks a little, but we, we survive. <laughs> You'll um, make it. I'll make it. Anyways, I'm feeling healthy, feeling good. Um, okay. So, Wink, I don't know if you want to start with the, you know, I get to interview David all the time. I don't know if you want to start with the first question for, for David, and then I'll jump in with some of my own. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll do it. Um, okay. and, and, and David, this was something, um, I had a number of questions for David. Um, uh, so let me start with one uh, that particularly intrigued me. Um, I could pick many, but I thought this one was one that really, um, uh, puzzled me. Um, based upon what I know have read over the years, um, and there's actually a book called The Jewish Phenomena by Steven Silberger, who talks about this. Mm-hmm. Um, he says that, in a sense, the Jewish culture is loosely comprised of strongly um, strong individuals that are loosely bound together. And so it puzzles me how in a culture composed of strong individuals, right, that mm-hmm. there would be these um, efforts to impose ideology or conformity on others. And that seems to be a paradox to me. Strong mm-hmm. individuality valued, right, on the one hand, and yet this 
this this this this impulse to seek to impose ideology on people uh, for the sake of critical social justice, however that's defined. Can you maybe unravel that for me, or kind of explain? And of course, no one speaks for all people in any group. You don't speak for every uh, person no. who's Jewish in the, on the planet. But based upon your your thoughts and ideas, uh, how does that unravel? How does that make sense? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I just wrote a uh, a piece basically in defense of Jewish debate culture because mm -hmm. I grew up debating mostly Jewish boys. I'm going to be honest; those are the people that I grew up with most closely, and we sure. debated everything. And um, and it it helped me become a critical thinker. It helped me critically evaluate ideas, and I worked really hard to instill that in my kids and now my stepkids. We would have Shabbat dinner debates where I would raise mm. an issue for discussion. Um, it could be anything from, yes. you know, uh, do video games cause violence to, um, you know, to does God exist or whatever, you know, and, and, and all ideas were, were welcome. All arguments were welcome. Now, I was usually the devil's advocate in that in that scenario. So that to me was a key part of being Jewish. In fact, it's sort of encapsulated in this phrase, machloket l'shem hashamayim, which is um, arguments for the sake of heaven. Um, and the idea was that that in, in Jewish, Jewish tradition is that, um, that arguing about ideas was a way of elevating them, was, was, was what um, allowed us to um, discern um, God's will in the case of sort of religious debates or to find the best solutions to problems in society. So to me, that's a deeply held value. But there's also always been sort of a utopian um, disposition in the Jewish community as well. You know, there's always been Jews who um, wanted to, uh, were sort of Marxist. I mean, Karl Marx being one of them. Um, I, I was recently talking to a, uh, a professor who was telling me that he grew up in Brooklyn and his parents were Stalinists, you know, in, in you know, the 1920s and the like. And, uh, 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 um, and, and I thought that was fascinating that, um, you know, that's the upbringing he had. So, so th these, these two things have always sort of coexisted in the Jewish persona mm. uh, or personas. And, and, um, and I, and I feel like I'm sort of now fighting on one side of that debate against <laughs> the other side. Right, right. You know, David, I'm so ha happy to hear that because it has such um, echoes with my own experience. I um, happen to have uh, uh, lived as a, as, a, as a young child and grew up in the presence of 15, 15 uh, different uncles. And when you would have family gatherings or family reunions, you would hear 15 different opinions about everything under the sun. And that was part of the joy of being around uh, other Twymans and other Womacks was that, you know, anticipating well, what is Uncle Will going to say? What is Uncle Thad going to say? What's Uncle Bay's uh, position? And of course, what does Uncle James Scott think or Uncle Robert Daniel? I could go on and on. And that was just seen as normal. And it was seen as rich. It was seen as constructive. It was seen as normal. It was seen as discernment par excellence. And so it always amazes me when today in some quarters of the black uh, community, there's none of that. Someone once said, if you talk to two Jewish people, you'll get three opinions. 
I think if you talk to three black people, you get one opinion. And that's actually the opposite, I think, of what it should be in the academy. So, but thank you. you But interestingly, though, I would I would suggest that as the the black community sort of um, stifles its own dissent, Hmm. um, that leads to the same in the Jewish community. There's a deep need in the Jewish community to be in sync with the civil rights movement and Mm. to fashion ourselves as uh, as sort of leading the the legacy of martin luther king now that it's his birthday we should we should mark it but but that's yes uh uh cheers (laughs) um that's deeply embedded in the jewish imagination and i think um when when jews hear a narrative coming from key elements of the black community there's going to be a lot of pressure um, toward what somebody called identitarian deference, mm-hmm. and um, and I and I feel that acutely in the current sort of progressive Jewish community. Wow, wow. I mean, does that suggest there's a responsibility for dissidents within Black culture and consciousness to speak up more? Because then Jewish Americans can have a better read on the room of diversity of thought and opinion in Black America. Yeah, I absolutely. You know, one of the big frustrations for me, I mean, I, I was CEO of a progressive, a Jewish center left advocacy organization um, that was dealing with issues like criminal justice reform and immigrant rights and the like. And sure. um, and I, 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 I would try to raise heterodox black thinkers like the Glenn Lowry's and uh, Coleman Hughes and John McWhorter's. And I realized that no one felt comfortable actually bringing them out in public. And um, a, a writer for the Forward, named, uh, which was a Jewish newspaper named Batya Unger Sargon, who just became, you know, who became deputy editor of Newsweek's opinion page and wrote, came out with this book on woke media recently. Right. She wrote a series of articles on black heterodox thinkers and why Jews should start to listen to them as well and really got roundly pilloried in the community. So you, it just tells you that that um, the more I think the black community outwardly diversifies, even though I do believe it's a diverse community, actually, I believe your uncles still are out there, but they're <laughs> maybe they've been silenced by the culture in a way as well. But the more right. it diversifies, the easier it will be for the Jews and other communities to diversify as well. And I think in the better social solutions that we'll fashion collectively as well. Such a great point, David, such a great point. I feel some ways that we were wiser about race in the 1970s than we are now, 50 years later. And I say that because wisdom comes from discernment, which comes from a multiplicity of of opinions uh, in one's family and in the public square. I see less of that. Um, if If I could be transported in time to 1975 and tell my various uncles, there'll be a day when people only listen to this one viewpoint and not any other viewpoint, they would they would be incredulous. They would view that as a dystopian future, to be honest with you. They would view right. this as a dystopian future. Um, yeah, I, go ahead. Well, because this, this, this touches on what you guys are talking about, but we talk a lot, Wink, you and I talk a lot, and David, you and I talk a lot about culture. And David and I don't always disagree on this point, but I, I feel like culture is somewhat chosen 
and almost human made. I was going to say man made, but you know, hey, you know, yeah. we, we are, <laughs> um, but we 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 already started talking out about a Jewish culture. And Blake, uh, you know, Wink talks to me a lot, David, about is there one of his big questions he's always asking: Is there room for individuality within Black culture? So this is touching on the conversation that we're having. But I'd like to talk a little bit more about the idea of culture specifically. Is culture something that is that we are just born into and have no choice? Or, I mean, obviously it shapes us. And, and David, I know you push back on me like there, you know, in certain communities, you know, you go to certain communities and obviously whatever your surroundings are, your family dynamics, that's what shapes the culture. But are we predestined to live out that culture or do we have a choice so i suspect that if you lived in um you know 18th century europe in a uh, in a ghetto uh you had very few choices cultural choices you couldn't go live somewhere else with a different group of people if you were jewish you didn't go join a buddhist monastery or uh, you simply um you simply lived in your jewish community um there were people um as as sort of the enlightenment set in people had more and more choices so you could sort of reject your own cultural heritage and find other ways of living um but, you know, to me, the, the question about culture is one of an explanatory factor. And I like to use the word cultures because I don't think any one culture defines the Jewish community. I mean, certainly the culture of Israel is very different than the, than the culture writ large of the American Jewish community. Um, I grew up with an, um, a mom from Iraq. She's a Iraqi Jew. That culture was similar but quite distinct from the European uh Jewish culture. The foods were different. The uh, a lot of the practices were different, but there were still things that bound us together. And and I, I from what I can tell, you know, when I, I get a little uneasy when I hear people talk about quote unquote black culture as an explanatory factor, because because you know, first of all, today two thirds of black people live in the middle class or above. I mean, it's not like you're living in this. Everybody's living in in the culture of the inner city. It's just not true. Um, and and so I think that there are cultures. Um, culture matters because if it didn't, then we wouldn't be speaking about these groups as in a distinct sort of way. So, for example, if I, if, Jew, if there was no such thing as culture, then there would then there would be nothing that separated sort of some of my personal attributes that are recognizably Jewish from some of yours, which might be recognizably Texan or recognizably Californian or whatever. There we would there would be nothing that separated any of us from any of us other than our life experiences, and I just don't think that that's true or realistic at all. <clears throat> Wink, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I mean, both oh, just I, a response. I know you're ready. A response to David, but also like again, what we talk about is there such a thing as black culture? Like, and if there is, what is it? So, yeah, Mike is well, yours. you know, I think um, based on what I have seen in my experience, um, I think that um, the use of culture is a shorthand. Uh, rough justice um, uh, descriptor. Um, so are there elements that could fairly be ascribed as cultural um, markers? Well, the answer is yes, clearly. Um, things that come to mind, for example, would be perhaps membership in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Uh, to me, that's a very strong cultural um, 
uh, part of my memory, uh, my uh, memory banks. Uh, that wouldn't be true for Jennifer, particularly, or for David, right? Uh, another example would be the Black Barbershop. Uh, until a year or two ago, due to the pandemic, you know, I had never had my hair cut from someone who was not Black. So I think clearly, and I think that's not the case for Jennifer, I suspect, <laughs> and I suspect that's the case for David. So I think that's sort of a cultural marker. Um, another example would be uh, growing up in grandma's home with Black Enterprise Magazine or Ebony Magazine on the coffee table for little grandchildren to read and learn from. That's a cultural marker. That wouldn't be true for Jennifer, I suspect. I suspect you didn't see Black Enterprise at grandma's house, right? And I think that's true for David too. So clearly there are cultural markers that we can roughly say uh, influence and inform a sense of Black culture. However, and the danger is, the danger is, you don't wanna take that too far because if there are over 40 million Black Americans, there are over 40 million life stories, perspectives and experiences. So for example, um, even though I grew up in the African Baptist Episcopal Church, um, I love Mandolin Rain by Bruce Hornsby and the Range. That's not stereotypically black. Um, I love Star Trek marathons. That's not a caricature one would ascribe to black culture. Um, I am enthralled uh, with personal history uh, of all races, not just one race, because I recognize I'm a factor of all races, many races. Um, many black people wouldn't feel that way. That would be part of their cultural milieu. So I do think that there is a rough recognition of something which we can call distinctively black culture, but the danger is having it defined too much because we're all individuals. So if you start at the starting point of the individual, there really are, uh, if you dig deep enough, over 40 million different ways to live and to be uh, in this country, uh, a black American. So that's why I tend to be very um, skeptical of the use of culture, because I think that people who say race equals culture are people who are trying to suppress and repress uh, independence of thought. Uh, they're trying to impose conformity. And to me, that's a bad thing. Because remember, I had 15 uncles who would have 15 different opinions on anything under the sun. Was that black culture? That's a good question. Right, but you know, I, 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 right. <laughs> the interesting thing is, look, I, I've lived in, I spent some time living in Israel, sure. right, and 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 if if Jewish culture completely defined me, I would have, I, I would have more in common with my Israeli brethren than I do with either of you. And in some cases, that's true, by the way. I do have a common experience with, with them, but I also have a common experience with you. And if I'm honest, I have just as much, if not more in common with you culturally than I do with cousins who grew up 6,000 miles away, yeah. who I have a lot in common with as well, just on a different set of, exactly. of markers. Right. And right. so I think culture is, a, you know, but I think sometimes in this debate, it's used as, as the question is, what, why are there, why are there disparities? And um, and you you know the Ibram X Kendi's will say, well, there's disparities because there's racism and discrimination, and the Thomas Sewells will say um, there's discrimination because there are cultural 
uh, differences that might lead to disparities in certain situations. Even and you know, I mean, his his view is more complex than that. And I, and I think that those are important discussions to have. Like, I don't think that that should be um, those discussions should be somehow relegated and marginalized because I do think I do think culture can matter. I mean, look, if you look in if you look at a uh, a white town in a former manufacturing area. I mean, let's say a very majority white town where where there's just an, a, a rampant opioid epidemic and white men in those places in particular are not doing well. Like they're just not doing well. Women, by the way, in those places might be doing far better. And, and you have to ask yourself, okay, is there a cultural problem that's emerged from the collapse of the manufacturing sector and other things that are, that are lead, that are, holding down black men, uh, white men from from reaching their their potential or from you know adopting new careers or becoming better educated in it um, and I think the same can be asked for for uh, black men in the inner city too I mean are there cultural factors that that might have grown out of a history of oppression that um, that are holding them back um, that go beyond whatever structural impediments might exist for them as well. And I, I think that those are the kinds of honest conversations we need to have in society. And, and by the way, Jews have cultural problems as well that make us less adapted. And I, uh, there, are, there are aspects of, of growing up Jewish that you know, I thought you know, could be done differently. So, and I'm willing to critique sure. those, sure. even if other people might weaponize those and, and, um, and demean me in the process. But it's still so important to leave room for that internal cultural critique as well. I hear you, and I want to come back to that because, um, you know, it's, it's ironic. It's ironic that sometimes you've heard, we've heard the phrase, stay in your lane, quote unquote. And I think the idea is that you really should only talk about things you have uh, group knowledge of or group experience of. Um, so I sometimes wonder when I really think about these things deeply is query whether or not um, I am stepping out of my lane when I attempt to understand cultural aspects and dimensions of the group you just identified. Uh, I think it was inner city or, 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 or ghetto cultures, because uh, that's not my lived experience. It's alien. Um, as Jennifer knows, and actually it brings me to another question I had, um, and so I'll conflate the two. There's a term which I've recently come to learn about. Uh, it's called gaslighting. You may have heard of that, David, gaslighting. And the idea is that someone attempts to disrupt your um, perception of reality for their own ends. It's kind of like, um, in some sense, using compassion uh, as a weapon for ideological conformity uh, or, or imposition. And so I sometimes wonder when so much of the discourse about race tends to go to that subgroup of, of culture, uh, inner city, culture plagued with um, dis uh, disparities. Is that really something I can speak to so well? Um, so for example, you know, there's a lot of media coverage about the 1619 project, but I was born in 1961. So the most important things in my life and how I perceive the world began in 1961, ironically, in the capital of the Confederacy, where I entered the world at St. Mary's Hospital in Richmond, Virginia. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm very much from a child of the 1970s, which was a period of great hope and optimism in the New South. Uh, also, the push for reparations for American slavery 
you know, I look around me, there are no lingering effects of American slavery in San Diego, California in 2022. That's just my position. Jennifer knows it well. There are probably other reasons to explain things we might call structural disparities in San Diego in 2022, but American slavery is not one of them. But yet, I don't see that kind of common sense conclusion in a lot of the public discourse. Another example, lynchings. When you look at the uh, 1619 Project, or when you look at you know, inflammatory uh, news stories or Hollywood coverage of things like the Mattel incident, you know, there's this sense that lynchings are central to Black culture and consciousness. Not my experience. There, I just researched on this. There were no lynchings in my home county, Chesapeake County after the Civil War. There may have been other places in the South, but so often we conflate the South as a monolith and don't recognize there was the Deep South, there was the Upper South, there was the Mountainous South. We don't see those distinctions so much. Redlining, this term always tends to come up in conjunction with structural disparities and uh, reparations. I did research, I was curious, in my home, town in Chesterfield County, where my family had lived since the Civil War, there was no redlining. I looked at the maps. I asked, requested, I think from someone uh, with the University of Richmond, there was no redlining in my neighborhood in Chesterfield County in the 1930s or 40s. So what am I to do with a public discourse that just assumes that's a core part of why we're having these discussions? Another example. Right, okay. Let me, right, one more sorry. example, and I'll let you go. Dogma, and this is part of our book, I don't see myself in that racial narrative so much. Um, I like the police, David. <laughs> I hate to tell you that. I'm the son-in-law of a police officer. Police are a force for good, I think. I came of age in a southern, suburban, conservative, small town. So I guess the point is, sometimes I wonder when I read the discourse and the, 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 the themes and assumptions that are made, does it effectively amount to disrupting my perception of my lived reality? And that's why I sometimes wonder, am I kind of not in my lane, if you think about it, when I try to uh, critique people like Tommy Hasey Coates and Kendi uh, uh, and the 1619 Project Lady? Uh, maybe they have their foot better placed in uh, these uh, cultures where there's structural disparities in my idea. What's your thought on that? Um, I don't want you to stay in your lane. Um, and, and because, <laughs> because, and the reason why is that, is that that, listen, we should listen to people who grew up in a certain cultural right. milieu, right? Like you should, you should listen to my experience about anti-Semitism because you're not Jewish and you wouldn't know what it's like, but I'm just one person. And my lived experience doesn't qualify me to define anti-Semitism sure. for everybody else. It just means I have an experience I could share with you and you'll you'll listen and take it for what it's worth. Um, but there are other kinds of data than just one's lived experience. There's actual data, for example. So if, 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 if you tell me you grew up, you, you live on the South side of Chicago and you've been harassed by police a lot and you say people are getting killed every day by police and i look at the data and and people aren't getting killed every day by police we have we we can talk about that and i don't want you to stay in your lane and i don't want to stay in my lane i i do believe we have an obligation to listen to people from different cultural contexts and factor that in as a data point and understand that they may be seeing something that we don't see that's 
absolutely possible. Oh. But after, but also, there's two kinds of myopia. Not one. There's the myopia of being too far away from something, but also the myopia of being too close to something. So my experience as a Jew, growing up with some anti-Semitism and people throwing coins at my feet or whatever may also make it so I exaggerate anti-Semitism. And when I see a, the Pew study come out and say that Jew, and see that Americans admire Jews more than any other religious group, I can say, wait a second, maybe my experience that I grew up in Columbus, Ohio with anti-Semitism is not the entirety of how Americans who are not Jewish see Jews. And so I need to be open to those possibilities and to other forms of data than just my own experience. And I, I want you to be too, that's my... Oh, okay. <laughs> Okay, and, and, um, and you know, and once again, uh, I think that uh, I, I come back to the fifteen uncles. You could write a short story about the fifteen uncles and their wisdom on racial discourse right. in the public that square. So yeah, but do you, do you think my use of that term gaslighting is hyperbole, or do you think there's something to that? I, I think gaslighting is sometimes when when you make somebody out to be crazy. Um, and uh, when they're not, you know, that's how I think of gaslighting. And sometimes it's used that way in public discourse. Um, and 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 you'll say, well, um, and, and I, I think we should be careful about how we use that term. I mean, because mm -hmm. it because it, it can shut you down. It, it can be used as a defense mechanism to prevent somebody from critiquing you. It can say you're gaslighting me when all they're really doing is offering a critique of your point of view. Mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. um, so. Um, I, I'm I, I'm wary of the term. Not that it never applies. It's like a dog whistle, right? There are right. sometimes when people actually dog whistle. They're 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 saying something that they mean to be racist, but they're using a term that's not readily recognized, and they're trying to send a signal to their folks that yeah, I'm I'm engaging in racism, and and yet it's easy to weaponize that term. Say that ah, that person's just dog whistling. Well, they might not be dog whistling. You know, so oh, I, I, I want to, I want to, so I, I'm, I'm getting a little wary about those terms. Sure. Next question, David. This is a wonderful conversation, by the way. My next question. Plus, I tried, Jennifer knows, I try, I try so hard, David, not to read Yahoo News. Because I find every time I read Yahoo News, I'm, I'm glum and depressed and despondent. But something sucks me back in, maybe the al algorithms. So last night I read Yahoo News. Mm -hmm. And no surprise, I came across an essay that made me that made me despondent, that 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 uh, lowered my spirits. There's a famous writer called Torre. You may have heard of him, uh, T O U R E, something like that. Well, I mean, Torre, uh, Stokely Carmichael, or the oh no 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 no. I think this is another guy. He goes, he uses uh -oh. one name as his name. Oh, um, I see, I gotcha. But he wrote this essay about how it's really hard and difficult to be friends with white people. And that you need really to be uh, leery. Uh, and and I'm going to quote what he said and ask you my question. So he said to begin his essay, black people shouldn't feel guilty about having strict boundaries of white friends to protect their inner peace. It's hard being friends with white people. I mean, being really close to where you really let them into your heart of hearts, quote unquote. Now, of course, this is Yahoo News goes out to millions of people. And sure. so I just thought that was like just opposite of my life. And so I wanted to ask you, I mean, obviously you can't, as we know, speak for all people who are Jewish, but is that, isn't that same kind of theme in Jewish culture and consciousness? Do Jews maintain strict boundaries with non-Jewish friends to protect their inner peace? Is this idea alien to Jewish culture and consciousness? Would the typical Jewish person say, 
it's hard being friends with non-Jewish people. Why or why not? Yeah, I think the answer to that is a resounding no. I mean, um, look, it is true that when Jews get together in a certain place in a certain way, there may be something that we have in common that allows us to laugh in a certain way or see a situation a certain way or enjoy food or wine or culture in a certain way. And I value that. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I value that. But I also know, I mean, I'm, I'm married for a second time and my, my wife is from Hong Kong and um, we, um, we grew up very differently. And we do still have some different ideas about the world, but we also have a tremendous amount in common. And, and so clearly Jewish people can relate at a very deep level with non-Jewish people. And I think that's just such a sad commentary um, about that person and about his take on on reality. I, I think people can form deep common bonds and they have to work at it sometimes. You know, I grew up um, in Columbus, Ohio, as I said, and um, I think there was maybe one black kid in my class through sixth grade. Uh, Sounds like high school, just teasing. <laughs> right, yeah. And then, and, and then we had busing. Um, and I know that some people regard busing and, and forced integration, desegregation as a, sort of a blight for the black community. But for me, I will tell you, it exposed me for the first time to black kids. So I, I, a little story. I was sixth grade and there was a group from the outside of our school that would come in for every couple of days a week. And they were from the learning behavioral disabilities. And they were mostly black kids, not all, but mostly black kids. And I remember sitting across from them at lunch one time and I was scared to use the word black as in referring to the color black because I didn't know if I would be offend, offended. Mm. And, and, then, and then all of a sudden in seventh grade, we had, uh, lo and behold, we, I was in a school that all of a sudden was probably 30, 40% black. And I, and I started meeting black kids. And there was still um, cafeteria. You'd have black tables and white tables. Mm -hmm. And I think that that probably still is today. And I think it's sad. But mm -hmm. I also made black friends. I did. I mean, through, through middle school and high school, I, I made black friends along the way. And that gave me a, sort of a, a cultural exposure that I wouldn't have had otherwise that I deeply value today. That, um, and, and I think we should look for opportunities to bring people together and look for opportunities. Yep to share culture and to explore and not to put up impediments in ourselves. To me, that's a really depressing view of humanity. And I don't, I think a wrong one actually. Now, um, and this writer, to continue the thread, this writer said that there are certain preconditions he sets forth before he can be friends with a white person. One of the preconditions is you must be an ally, however that is defined. Discuss. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So an ally is <laughs> ideological conformity. And I think right. that's that's not actually I think it, you're not actually getting an ally there. Um, you know, you're 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 getting somebody who's professing to agree with you. Maybe they agree with you. Maybe they don't. Um, what I what I but I don't actually think that that's how deep relationships and bonds form. You, they, they form because you, you bring ideas together, you, you argue about them, you disagree, you start to agree in ways because you've actually fleshed them out together. To me, that's a much deeper form of connection mm -hmm. than, um, than insisting that somebody agree with you on your worldview. So again, I think that's sort of a sad 
litmus test that he's putting forward. And I think that's exactly what we don't want. And I fear that writ large, that litmus test that you just talked about that in that individual is, is being collectively imposed on our discourse on people. Yes, and I think that's yes. what I'm pushing back against. Yeah, um, yes. Is, I want to I want to touch on that because here's the thing how I've come to understand the term allies. Allies are transactional. They see us as objects to be used, not as relationships to be had. And so that term has really become to me um, almost a, a dirty word, you know. Whoa slogan word <laughs> yeah it's a slogan word but but because it, it that word in itself dehumanizes you know we have become transactional now that said i want to i want to switch gears just a little bit because there's something i really david i know um particularly in the past couple of years you've written a lot and on uh it, within the jewish community and and woke them in the jewish community and whatnot and I, I feel like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you also have talked a lot about how this kind of new awakening after George, George Floyd with the, the new vigor in the BLM movement and how there's a lot of anti-Semitism itself within the BLM movement, the Black Lives Matters movement. And I know you've mentioned before in this conversation about how uh, Jewish communities often would to use the slogan word ally, but I don't mean it in the allies, but ally as in come together with the black community, particularly during the civil rights era. But now we're seeing a kind of, if you will, a schism. And that's what I want you to talk about because the new black community, again, if you can even say that there's such a thing as we've already discussed, that at least the, the community that revolves around the slogans and the jargon of BLM in some ways has anti-Semitism baked into it. Can you talk about that a little bit, how it's impacted you and what I know you're doing a lot of work to uh, transcend this, that moment. Can you talk about that a little bit too? Sure, sure. So, you know, I've been in sort of the Jewish advocacy field my entire life and a lot of that has been doing intergroup relations. So I did years of Black Jewish dialogue at the American Jewish Committee, which is a uh, one of the oldest Jewish organizations in America. Um, I One of the first projects I worked on and helped found was something called Project Reef, which was the real estate apprentice program. It was a group of Jewish uh, commercial real estate executives who decided that they needed to diversify the field and that there were a lack of, of, of Black uh, commercial real estate people. And we went out and found qualified young black people to come into the field, train them in commercial real estate and, and, and brought them into the field. And over a course of years, diversified the commercial real estate industry. It was a fantastic project. So I had a deep commitment to this, but I've always known, and it wasn't just after George Floyd, it was before George Floyd, that there was sort of this um, ideological litmus test and push for conformity. I saw that in my first diversity, equity, and inclusion seminars that, you know, you were expected to believe certain things about why there was disparity and you had to sort of toe the party line. And I always resisted that. But after George Floyd, to me, it became unbearable. And, um, and you know, I, I was very involved and it helped create a criminal justice reform initiative and um, felt very strongly that, you know, that um, criminal justice reform, disparities in the system were really a, a 
a scourge in the country and that we needed to we needed to deal with the fact that there were that there were more than two million people incarcerated in this country and that many many which whom were black and that 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 wasn't um th that there were better ways to do this and um and yet one i remember one time i was i was giving a talk before a criminal justice coalition and i asked the question do I have to believe that America is a white supremacist society in order to do this work? And I was shocked. The answer was a resounding yes, you do. And, and I realized that that was the new vibe. That was the new litmus test, that it was no longer um, about just what policies you believed in would be the best for society, but rather your internal belief system and how you thought about disparity. And to me, that was not the kind of liberalism I wanted to be part of. That was um, that ran antithetical to my values. I didn't think that was healthy for society. And um, and then I started to see bullying in the Jewish community and outside the Jewish community about this. I was at a Black Lives Matter gathering with the Jewish community um, in 2016, and um, and I was I was stunned at the the sort of narrative and it was not just it was not it was black Jews as well who were who were uh, who were giving this narrative and I felt that it was not the right uh, it was not it was Ill, deeply illiberal it was and it, it would not solve social problems and so to me I knew I had to find a way to sort of uh, engage in liberal conversations liberal meaning open and honest conversations around race and racism that allowed me to think out loud and to experiment. Sure. One of the things I love about, about you both and about doing this work is that I'm surrounding myself with people who are allow us to think out loud. You know, we've gone in, Jennifer and I um, have gone into sort of the trans issues. And I don't think either of us had a deep understanding of what these issues were. And we got to know trans people who were heterodox thinkers. And, and I wasn't walking on eggshells with them. I was able to sort of say and ask questions that might be deeply offensive in other contexts, or they might be perceived that way, but sure. that allowed me to get to know who they were, what challenges they had in an open way. And so that's what I wanna restore in the interracial conversation, in the black Jewish conversation. I wanna be able to say, well, I don't think that's just racism at work here. I wanna be able to, I wanna be able to think out loud because that's what authentic people do. And that's you how want to authentic become, relationships are made. You want to become a Twyman uncle. <laughs> yeah. I'll, be one, I'll gladly be one of the uncles. Uh, because I love that. And, um, and, you know, my uncles were crazy as a loon, but that's okay, you know. But I, we talked about things. No one, no right, one ever right. condemned you afterwards. Right. Just, you right. still broke bread together. Um, and, um, and so I, I want, you know, to me, to me the, that vision of humanity, uh, of getting to know somebody different than you and finding right. what you have in common and exploring ideas together is yeah. just much more compelling than, than that author in Yahoo News. Yeah. Had to say. yeah. And yeah. more Thank fun. You. It's so much more fun yeah. that way. I mean, I don't want to hang out with someone who's just like me. That's, that's, that's not fun, but, but David, I want to push you a little bit more on that. That was, I mean, thank you for that, but I, I want to know where you've seen new threads or maybe they're not new, but they just, for me, being an outside, not being in the Jewish community, it seems that with this new introduction of this new Black activism, we have seen new threads of anti-Semitism rise. I didn't, get, I didn't really go there. Yeah. And I really want to so, hear more about that. Or maybe, again, maybe it's not new and it's just been, it was latent. And it's, but what's going on with that? Can yeah. you explain well, there's that? There's always been, you know, 
even during the civil rights era, when Jews and blacks cooperated at very high levels. I mean, there were, you know, if you look at the civil rights um, movement of the 1960s was basically Jewish liberals working with uh, with black leaders like Martin Luther King. And, and you know, um, and and so, and that's why people like John Lewis had such deep and abiding relationships in the Jewish community because they went back, to the, you know, for 50 years, you know. So, um, so, but, but there was always resentment there was there were always problems and tensions and they sometimes surfaced even in the movement itself and then a couple of different things happened one is the black power movement began to sort of eclipse the traditional civil rights movement in many ways and two jews started moving out of the inner city and into suburbs and um and so we didn't know each other we weren't very proximate to each other um very often now that changed when more and more black people entered the middle class and the professions and the like, and there were more exchanges, but you know, we weren't as, um, as uh, proximate as we once were. Um, then you had figures like Louis Farrakhan who, you know, traded in anti-Semitism, and, and it was very painful for Jews to, uh, to see, um, black leaders who were willing to go along with him, even though he was willing to, even though he expressed anti-Semitic views or called Jews a gutter religion and the like. Um, and, um, and you know, I think that those were always there. Those those tensions were always there. Um, and the Black Lives Matter movement, though, combined them with this sort of an ideology that said that there are oppressed and there are oppressors, and saw Jews as being primarily white and associated them with whiteness and white power. And um, and I think that brought those um, tensions to the surface. And um, and so, you know, I think those are what you're seeing now. And uh, um, it's not, and obviously this is not, the concern is not just in the black community. I think in general, woke ideology and that sort of bifurcation of the victimizer versus victim does tend to bring about anti-Semitism. And, um, and, and Jew, we, that's why some of us are very wary about it. And even some Jews who have sort of, soft woke inclinations might in a private moment tell you, yeah, I do have some concerns that it is bringing out some of this sentiment. Does that concern you, the, the disconnect between, I don't, is, is, it, is it double think or the public-private dichotomy? In other words, people will agree with you privately, but publicly they're too afraid to say anything. There's a lot of that. I, I, and anybody who does this work no, gets lots of Facebook messages from friends who agree with you, but then then don't choose to be part of the public conversation. And I yep. get it. Like in my past job, I couldn't have done that. I mean, I desperately wanted to, but I couldn't have done that and make, keep my job. It just wouldn't have worked. And so there are a lot of people who feel that acutely. Um, and that's why I'm doing things like bringing Jewish professionals together to speak about their concerns around this so that over time they sort of enable each other and they create sort of a, a, a permission structure uh, right. to speak more openly about their concerns about this ideology. Um, so I do think that that kind of double think um, exists in, in spades. I do think that that um, public-private dichotomy exists in spades, but I, um, but I do think you can change that. Um, it's it's an incremental process, and that's what that's what I'm been doing now. I mean, my entire organization, the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, is dedicated to um, it, to encouraging and enabling and equipping people to speak authentically. That's important. I think authenticity is the kryptonite to this uh, in many ways. Um, 
do you think that um, one of the things I've done, uh, and I think Jennifer is on board with it to, to a large extent, is I try to identify words that I call slogan words. In other words, they're words that are, they can mean a thousand things to a thousand different people. And they're clearly manipulative words that have been devoid of real hard meaning. And yet they are used to further the narrative. They're used to further uh, the agenda for, for power or domination of resources. Do you think that an aggressive anti-slogan word campaign by dissidents like us would be a good way to begin to dismantle this, this um, regime of, uh, uh, of slogan words and uh, conformity. Right. If you just you know, say it's, no, go ahead. Yeah, and, and there, I think that there are words we should push back on that carry a lot more meaning than people who use them like to admit. And, um, and they're used sort of to, as, uh, they're weaponized politically. Um, I also, though, worry that sometimes that can be used in different ways. I'll give you an example. You know, it's we all talk about woke ideology or critical social justice ideology. Now, there are people who will say that's just a slogan word. And I want to say to them, well, listen, it's at a very high level of abstraction. Like, but I still need to describe this phenomena um, of that that we see, which holds that um, oppression is embedded in systems, which can be true, by the way, in my view. But but only the people with lived experience get to have the standing to articulate it and that right. how that's used in society. And, and that to me is the essence of, of woke ideology. I need to have a word for that. So while, so while I, so I do think that there is a very vigorous and necessary debate over what is a slogan and what is a useful term out there. I do think um, I do, you know, and, and I'll, I'll defend the words that I think make <laughs> sense to me that describe a reality that I think needs to be stated. And I'll push back even among my own ranks, by the way. I might say, well, that word I'm not sure is very helpful, yeah. um, even if it's one that people who generally agree with me might use. And I also will push back against those I disagree with on words that I think that are politically loaded but don't make sense. One word that I particularly do not like is marginalization, marginalize. Um, when I look, I think I first heard that word uh, used in this context, maybe 2018, 2017, 2019. He pushes never, back on me when I say it all the time. Yeah. It's <laughs> I, 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 I've never thought of myself that way. Never did think of myself that way. I'm not sure my ancestors thought of themselves that way. And they lived in the South, in Virginia. Uh, and so to me, that word um, is corrosive of the dignity of the individual. It's corrosive of the idea of uh, the internal locus of control of agency, right? right? Um, you're t you're using a word to suggest to me how I should perceive my lived reality, when in fact, I got those lessons from my parents and my church and my school back in the 1970s. I don't need an Ivy League scholar in the year 2020 to tell me how I should perceive reality. Do, do you, does that make sense, David? That uh, yeah. for me, that, marginalization is interesting. Case that's an interesting case study. So, look, I, I do believe that there are groups that the structure of that that have been quote unquote marginalized by the structure of society. I mean, you can go in um, certain sure. countries and see, you know, even the United States. I I think it would be fair to say that pre-civil rights, black communities were largely marginalized, even if 
we didn't believe, even if the individual still had agency. So, 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 you know, if, if you can't ride the front of the bus, in some sense, you're marginalized, even though you still might have a degree of agency. The writer and uh, neuroscient uh, um, neuroscientist Viktor Frankl um, wrote a book called um, Man's Search for Meaning. And uh, I, I, I discussed it, it with, with yeah, Valerie Tarico in our last podcast. And even in the midst of the Holocaust, if you he was in the Holocaust, he was in the concentration camps, he saw that there were people who were able to bring meaning to their lives and and that gave them actually more control over their destiny than if they just sort of saw themselves as pure victims. I think that's a profound existentialist um, point that that and I think it's so important for society to embrace that. But that doesn't mean that being in the concentration camp, he wasn't being oh, marginalized. Right, 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 and right, so right, I think right. I think sometimes that's where the discourse gets lost is that one, one can be a victim in some sense and still have agency. And I think the discourse is too um, con constricting in that way because it assumes that if somebody's been marginalized in any way or victimized in any way, that they have no locus, internal locus of control. And I think that's wrong right. and, right. and not right. helpful and not helpful. Right, mm -hmm. right. I shared with Jennifer this research. There's a paper done, I think, by the Manhattan Institute called The Social Construction of Race. And the researchers had a control group of Black people read passages from Between the World and Me by Tommy Hasse Coates. And then they read some other uh, prose uh, that was far more um, uh, infused with Black achievement and mm -hmm. uh, internal locus of control. And they discovered a drop, a noticeable drop in the self-confidence of the Black readers of that work after they had consumed it. To me, that's horrifying. And so I ask, ask you, David, is that one of the chilling reasons why we need to put a halt to this because of the devastating effect on the mental internal locus of control, the mental sense of self and sense of self-confidence among our most vulnerable black kids, black boys and girls. Absolutely. I, I, Maybe the I, most important reason. But by the you. way, it, it's not just that, you know, it, the enti this entire cultural push around safetyism even makes, um, you know, middle, upper middle class kids uh, more fragile than they would be. You know, this, the, the, uh, the, Barry Weiss had a uh, discussion on trauma recently with a trauma specialist who said, the word is becoming abused. It's a, a, actually a very small percentage of people who have experienced some kind of trauma mm -hmm. actually uh, are traumatized. And, and yet we live in this society where everybody wants to claim trauma. And I think that makes them much less resilient um, much less able to sort of deal with uh, lives, uh, their lives, many twists and turns and the like. I think that's extremely bad for our psych, our collective psychology and our individual psychology. And yet, obviously, is even worse for um, young black kids who uh, may feel that the system is rigged against them and then are not able to, you know, not able to achieve. And I think that that if I think, um, you know, the onus is on on on. Black parents and churches and others to 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 try to um, help their kids see their own agency, and I think that's not the culture we want, um, and and not healthy, even if it's not entirely untrue. In other words, even if there are elements of the system that are discriminatory, you let's fight those. 
Like, let's, let's, let's deal with that. But let's not then make that the fundamental narrative, because if it is, then, then it's going to really harm the people it's meant to help. So, David, on that note, I've got, you know, one last question uh, to, before I let you go. Do you think that that might be one of the difference is between, um, to the extent, again, that we can lump people into communities or cultures? You know, in the, the narrative that we are using now in America towards the Black community is one of, you are oppressed, nothing else matters. And within the Jewish community, even despite the own hardships of anti-Semitism, the Holocaust, et cetera, the model that was used more often publicly within the Jewish community was more of a Viktor Frankl, you've got this, we can come together, we can rise up. And maybe that story that we have been imposing on the, you know, the, those two different stories, one that, you know, particularly moved throughout the Jewish community of, you know, we are victors and not victims. And one that now is currently running throughout the black community of, you know, blackness is oppression, nothing else mattered. Maybe that is where the difference lies between um, that we need to, to transcend when we're talking about between the two communities. Yeah, and it might even be to, to bridge and to synthesize to a degree. Look, there's something in 1619 that we must acknowledge. And obviously, we should, there's something in 1776. And, um, you know, and I, I believe that we can find a synthesis in some ways between um, these two narratives. I actually put on Twitter the other day in response to something. I said, what if you, what if you took um, six traditional narrative people, moderate traditional narrative people, 1776 folks, and six mildly woke people who are sort of 1619 oriented, but not off the, the reservation. And you put them in a room for a week and you said, answer some questions about our collective narrative that we're going to teach in classrooms across the country. Would they be able to fashion a new story that embraced elements of both? And the answer is most of the people said, no, they wouldn't, which really was depressing for me. But I think that's the project in a way. The project is, yes, we were a country that, that was built to a degree on slavery, but we were also the great first democracy on earth with, with that, that brought democracy to the rest of the world. And both those things can be true. Both of those things can be true. And, and, and so how do, we, how do we weave them together in a common story. You know, I've seen this in Israel, by the way, as well, where, you know, the Israeli narrative, which was, had to be the case, the scheming narrative was, um, was that Israel was attacked in 1948 by the Arab states and that, um, and that the Palestinians left on their own accord who were living in Israel. And that's why there's a Palestinian refugee crisis. And later on, as Israel became more secure, a new group of Israeli historians came in and said, well, actually, some of those Palestinians were actually expelled in 1948 by Israeli forces. And, um, and they started reconciling that ugly part of their past, which was, which was um, you could argue was necessary or not necessary or brutal or, or defensible, whatever it is, but it was still a part of their past with the, with the fact that yes, we did need to create a state of our own. And yes, we were in the right to create a state of our own. And they started to reconcile that and it's become a richer, more nuanced narrative. I think that this country can do that, but I think wokeness is, is insisting on one narrative and maybe the right 
Um, the part of the right that is in sort of complete retreat from that, that denies that slavery or denies the legacy of racism is also in the wrong. And then what we need is people to come together, thoughtful people and say, let's, let's figure this out together. And that's not what's happening. That's not happening, unfortunately, nearly enough. And what I find uh, sad is that um, while I can perfectly take in what David just said, makes eminent sense. I'm not agree with everything, but I see the value. There are people like that writer on Yahoo News who wouldn't hear you. If you didn't say the key words, say the key slogans, they would just say, well, you haven't sworn fidelity to me as a black American, so I cannot hear you. You're speaking outside of your lane. And I think that is, it supports your point, is that a narrative which is illiberal, uh, a way of being in the way, world which is intolerant, makes it harder for us to have a collective sense of self, a collective sense of America, right? I mean, America is so diverse, you, you almost have to be open to other viewpoints and perspectives. And so I, I see the great battle between those who are open to other perspectives and viewpoints and those who are not open. And the question is, how do you resolve that tension? Um, and, you know, it's interesting because could we see a situation in the future where the divisions and the echo chambers deepen and grow greater as opposed to there being more uh, reconciliation? I mean, do you see in the next 10 or 20 years greater or less um, division in terms of echo chambers and the ability to hear other people? Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, someone, I, I, I recently heard, I think it might have been on Fareed Zakaria, one of the American historians said, the question is, are we in 1858 or 1968? In 1858, we ended up in civil war. In 1968, actually, we rebounded from this horrible moment in American history and sort of found our sea legs again. Um, and um, and the answer is, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm very scared. Like, it, it's hard in my own mind to... Um, to think of a way out of this because some of those societal forces around social media right. and um, gerrymandering that created a certain political reality and the rest are sort of the centrifugal forces are, are pulling us apart. Um, it is possible, and there are optimists here like Jonathan Rausch, for example, who say that, you know, we when the printing press first came out, um, there was complete and utter chaos. It was just a series of gossip and lies that were told. And eventually a group of responsible people, um, you know, took over the printing press and we had newspapers that helped us fashion a common understanding of the news and the like. Um, but, you know, this is not then. And, um, and social media is not the print press and the business model is not the same. And so I, I, on a good day, I'm mildly optimistic. On a bad day, I'm mildly pessimistic. Yeah. Yeah, America's a great country, you know, and oh, yeah. and and has gotten through all kinds of uh, of hardships and 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 shown progress. The question is, is this structurally different now than it was fifty years ago, hundred years ago? And I don't know. Well, I mean, there's there's always the, the, there's the idea as well that generations go generations go through cycles, and so while our children may come of age in an age of wokeism. Um, maybe our children's children will grow up weary of hearing all blacks are oppressed, all whites are oppressors, particularly right. since the country will be far more than black and white. It'll be Asian, right. Hispanic. Yeah. So maybe our children's children 
will say no more, that we no longer will tolerate a disconnect between the words in the public square and the reality we live every day. So maybe that's yeah. it. Maybe it'll, it'll be a generational yeah. thing. The other, the other possibility is that we'll sort of scale up critical thinking in society over time, that we'll realize that with this sort of informational epistemic chaos that we have, where nobody can validate any information, that we're going to have to teach kids how to think critically so that they can make sense of the world. And that, that will give them the wherewithal to form new ties and new creative ways of building society, shared society. And yeah. that's, that's what we're trying to do here. So at least we're, <laughs> we're playing our role. Right, right. That. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, what's, what's sad is, I told Jennifer this earlier this week, uh, what's so sad is if I were on a panel of Black law professors, no one would hear me. People would run away in horror from, from my arguments and my positions. So it's, um, it's just interesting to me that sometimes I find more open-heartedness, open-mindedness in settings that are non-Black than in majority Black settings. What do you make of that, David? Sure, that's a good question. Um, it is? Yeah, I don't know. You know, it's some, some of the settings that I'm most frustrated with are Jewish settings where I used to be able to debate anything and I can't anymore. Right, so, right, know, because I, of conformity, because of, yeah. Right, yeah. right. and so I, you know, I, I, I the, the people that I'm most frustrated right now with are progressive rabbis who are calling me out for um, all sorts of things. You know, I, I've experienced a lot of sort of like Twitter flame wars and stuff. We just had a letter signed by 240 some rabbis mm-hmm. that called for freedom of expression and viewpoint diversity in the Jewish community. And that was our doing. And um, right. it got, was, a, was a front page story in this, the Jewish journal and magazine. And, um, you know, we we're very proud of that. But a lot of the rabbis who signed it got were told by their colleagues that they're racist and transphobes. So well, I, 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 it doesn't compute to me. Remember, mm-hmm. as you said earlier, an important impulse through Jewish culture and consciousness is that sense of independence, that you value creativity of thought, right? That, that you're, it seems like that's completely trumping that, that impulse. Well, so. a certain group, yeah, that, that they, yeah. they desperately want to be in alignment. And it, it's, it's so, I can't even... Uh, yeah. It's groupthink. Right, it's group. After George Floyd, there was sort of the reckoning within the Jewish community and every other community, and some organizations of people brought in new folks. They brought in like a DEI coordinator or something like that. Right, and right, happened, right. And, and once they did it, it was sort of like signing on the dotted line. They they now, and I think some of them might have some misgivings about it a little bit. They thought, they stepped back, well, maybe we sort of jumped too soon on that. Maybe we, we stifled debate in our own community. Maybe we need to take a step back. But a lot, but they won't admit it, um, or yet. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> and so, you know, it's going to take a massive counter effort to get people to to say maybe this is not should, you know, maybe we need a more rich conversation than this. So, uh, so th- those are so it's in my own community where I'm most frustrated, but I guess that makes sense because I'm seeing it up most more mm-hmm. close and personal. That's what I'm, that's the fight I'm fighting. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you know, that's the thing. I mean, I sometimes wonder if this is just spitballing. Maybe a third of people are true believers, really believe the narrative, and your no logic or reality will change their position. Yeah. Maybe one third of the community um, 
they think this is nonsense. This, this is just hokum, and they're going to speak up, as we are. And that's irregardless of race, irregardless of gender, ethnic group. I think it's more personality. And then there's maybe a very middle perso- third. Much personality. Right. <laughs> and then maybe there's a middle third that doesn't really believe this stuff, but they fear more the consequences of nonconformity. So mm-hmm. they go along to get along. They become the agreeable Jew, quote unquote. Uh, and so maybe the real battleground would be that middle third. The people who quietly and on the sly tell you, yeah, you know, I think you're right. But we're never in a thousand years speak up at the faculty meeting or at the corporate board meeting. So I'm looking at the concentric circles, right? So, yeah. okay. So if, if, if in terms of my target audience, the the there's the the people who are in the center, the believer who believe me, agree with me, and right. will are willing to speak out. And I mean, I just got to find those people, you know. Right. Um, then one layer out are the people who agree with me strongly. They have a they have well worked out view on this, but they just still haven't quite gotten themselves to be public about it yet. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. one outside of them are the people who. Um, who don't haven't really thought it through, maybe, or they might have. They may be slightly inclined to agree with me, and I have a lot of conversations with that. But but they just haven't developed the worldview around it, mm-hmm. uh, or 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 a set of talking points or whatever around yeah. it. And then of course there's the people who are inclined not to agree with me. The, the, I call those like the the soft woke folks, you know. Right. Um, right. And you know, and I, I think that's the reality that we live in. And I always try to say, okay, where are those people on that in the concentric circle? My immediate target audience is the people who agree with me but haven't yet come out of the woodwork yet. I want to coax those people out of the woodwork. That's mm-hmm. our that um more than I do the people who have yet to form an opinion because I those are the, those the low hanging fruit are those people one one right. one rung out from me. Right. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, Good point. And 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 then that when we're bigger we can go out we can go after the right. next uh it's like I phase two of of the enterprise, you know, the liberal enterprise. It, we're in the process right now of building, if you will, and I don't, you know, we all don't like the idea of tribes or tribalism or anything like that, but we are kind of building, if you will, what David and I have called the tribe of misfits and what Wink, I think, calls the dissidents. Yes, yes. Right? So between misfits and dissidents, creating that place where people of like, inquiry and curiosity and humility that um where and if we get big enough that those people that are the third that you're talking about um wink and that one of the concentric circles that david's talking about actually feel that there's enough of a tipping point where mm-hmm. there is a place for them to go to have these conversations and right now we're just we're not we're not big enough yeah we will be reminds- that's why we have these conversations True, true. I mean, it reminds me so much of um, the, the what was going on in Prague uh, in the 1970s, uh, after the 1968 uprising in Prague, that you had uh, an underground develop of dissidents. Um, right. and, uh, and and people just, peeped. there were some people who were true believers. There were those who saw the, the, the nonsense and spoke up. And there were those in the middle. And the, the the strategy was that people eventually began to speak up more and more, and the more people spoke up, the more that gave comfort to those who were soft uh, in agreement to speak up as well and to join in. 
And so eventually, great, um, great analogy. Yeah. 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 Eventually the regime was overturned. Yeah. So, so um, we recently had a, we recently, I, I handpicked, identified about 25 top Jewish professionals who I knew were somewhat sympathetic to me. In a couple cases, the only data I had was that they would like a Facebook post of mine. <laughs> they wouldn't say anything else. They would just like a Facebook post of mine. I right, said, right. Hmm. Hmm. And so, uh, so what I, 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 so I, I, somebody, it was somebody else's idea. So I put together a, a this meeting with Rabbi David Wolfe, who's considered America's top rabbi. He's a brilliant thinker and, and whatever, and, um, and, and a liberal thinker. And mm -hmm. we, we had a meeting two weeks ago with this uh, group of, I think it ended up with 22 Jewish professionals, some CEOs and, and organizations and yeah. the like. And um, some of them came to me afterwards and said it was so cathartic. Like mm -hmm. I, I, I've, I've, you know, I've been sort of silently suffering through this discourse. And I really needed, and so now we put together a steering committee and almost everybody on the damn call volunteered for the steering committee. And I know that like over time, we're gonna build on that. It's gonna go from 25 to 50 to 100 or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that, at some point, you whatever that is, you hit critical mass and you start to see right. things change. But, but I can tell that the trajectory of this will be getting more and more of them to speak out in certain situations because they know that other people were gonna be there for psychological support for them. They have a group yep. of people that they can fall back on and say, you know, I went mm -hmm. into that meeting and that, you know, that that woke rabbi told me I was an asshole and I felt bad. And they're and every, and there's friends that are going to, you know, then support that person. Mm -hmm. you know? That's why and, I'm uh, optimist. I mean, I'm more of an optimist than a pessimist around this because I do see that those movements happening and they are small, but they're but they're happening. Right, 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 right. right. So, so Jennifer, just to follow up, so we often talk about this. So the distinctions I draw between the 74% and the 26%, mm -hmm. does that not give you pause? Because maybe for the 74%, it's just impossible for them to move off the dial. What do you think? I, 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 I still remain, I mean, 26% is... Pretty good. Not, it's not small. It's millions and, of people. Yeah, 26% can can be influential, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, I, I, I'll give you just what, where I think about 26%, we'll just round it down to 25%. You know, when I was um, pregnant with Finn, I was a carrier of cystic fibrosis that I did not know until oh. I was pregnant. Turns out my husband, Finn's father, um, was also a carrier. The likelihood of two carriers coming together is like one in a million right and then the likelihood of been having it because he had one of my genes one of my good genes one of my bad genes one of kevin's good genes one of his mm -hmm. bad genes. so the, the those two genes coming together was 25 percent. that was a huge amount to think that my child could possibly yeah. you know be born yeah. literally and and die within years of a horrible disease 25 percent is a lot thankfully yeah. he doesn't have it but right. I have, I mean, I, I don't know, 25% doesn't, it's not a majority, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, it, it can create a groundswell. And David, just so you know what we're talking about uh, in the literature, I think it was, was it Pew Research? Yeah. Um, it was determined that 76% of Black Americans view their Blackness 
as very as extremely important or very important to their sense of self. The remaining 26% view blackness as of no importance or little importance to their sense of self. And so I've kind of looked at that and thought that offers nice discernment, insight into the possibilities here of moving people on the dial. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Like, I think it is very possible for somebody to say, my blackness is very important to me, but but it's not all that defines me. And I'm not going to go along with an ideology about my blackness. Like, I, I'm, I'm a, uh, very identified Jew, right? But I'm, I, but I know that my Jewishness is not all that defines me. I'm also an American. Right. I'm also a lot of other things, and right. a human right. being, and you know. Um, and so <laughs> I'm, I'm looking to, you know. So I, it doesn't have to be a limiting condition of my engagement. Um, it doesn't have to. I don't have to believe that, you know, that I, that that one aspect of myself, my Jewishness, is. Um, is definitive and that everything else doesn't matter. And, you know, um, and so, and I think that's, it's, it's that other, it's like the, the guy from the Yahoo News that, that yes, chooses yes. to look at that identity, not just as, as important to them because it carries cultural value and the rest, but chooses to use it as a, sort of a source of exclusion. You know? Yes, um, yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. But, but, but I wonder if, um, that right, well, clearly that writer's not alone uh, in his uh, values and attitudes. But if you look at a whole planet of institutions, such as historically black colleges and universities, if you look at black sororities, black fraternities, uh, black barbershops, uh, black um, entertainment television, uh, the NAACP award ceremony, on and on, the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, I mean, maybe maybe those institutions are manifesting that seventy four percent orientation of which that writer New York Times is giving voice. And so if if that's true, um, there is a serious um, uh, peer pressure to conform in that kind of in that kind of group. Uh, so, for example, to compare it, if I were to look at the Jewish American community, do you think the figures would be so heavily tilted towards extremely important or very important? I don't think so, but I haven't researched it, but I sense that that's kind of- it, that, There is that research. It would be, by the way. It would be extremely really? important or very important. Yeah. It would be It would be probably in the 70s. Um, oh, and I, you can look at the Pew study, by the way, of, of American Jewish life that came out um, just this last spring. Right. Um, and I think you would you would you would see elements of that as well. But but that for most Jews, uh, you know, even if they say it's very important to them, it doesn't mean that they're going to build their entire politics around it or, or their life see, or their friendships or. Right. It doesn't. Right. And that's not the Jewish condition today, unless you happen to live in, let's say, you know, some part in Brooklyn with a lot of Hasidic Jews you right. know, that, that choose to to, um, you know, live in that kind of bubble. I mean, most Jews just don't live that way today. They're not forced to live that way. Like there's a, there's a lot, what I grew up with, there were, you would, in Columbus, Ohio, you would see there was an all Jewish law firm, Schottenstein, yes. Zox, and Dunn. And then right next to it, there was uh, Brickler and Eckler, which had almost no Jews in the partnership ranks. I, you know, and there were Jewish country clubs, by the way, that a lot of us grew up with. But those are all dying now because people can get, become a part of whatever country club they want. They can go whatever law firm they want. And and um, and I, and so it was really once you lifted the discrimination, 
you just start to see, you started to see people just say, okay, I'll just you know I'll just go work for Bricker and Eckler instead of shutting things out. You know, and, and that's what happened. Well, uh, I think what what Wink has seen though, what he points out is like that. So that's happening in the in the Jewish community. But what he's seen is like more people though. It's the opposite in the black community. More people are seeking out black only spaces, buy only from black stores. You know, belong only to black clubs. Um, and so there, right. there's this active segregation that's happening um, from from any you know well, any Jack other community. Jack, Jack, Jack and Joe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, can you imagine Jennifer pe people leaving Jack and Jill because discrimination is gone? I don't see that. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I, I don't, you know, it's, it's, um, it's very interesting. And I, there, why is it that, you know, is it because black people still feel uncomfortable in white spaces because they're made to feel uncomfortable in white spaces, or is this in a way, um, you know, sort of a partially, you know, is self-imposed cultural reality? Is it because white people don't also want to cross? Racial lines, you know, it's still a little depressing to me that, you know, what, what, when did busing end for me? Probably like, um, like 1980, 79, 80s when mm -hmm. busing went into effect and right. we had integrated schools that there's still separate lunch um, seating, you know, that black kids sit with black kids, white kids sit with white kids. What's that about? Uh, <laughs> what is that about? Jennifer, right. do I talk about that in the manuscript? I think in an earlier draft I did, my experience with the black table in yeah. junior high school. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah, I have some fun, fond memories though, because I had some friends and I and sometimes they say, Bernstein, come here and sit with us at the table. And then and then they um and you know, it was very funny. I, I was into like philosophy. I'm sure I was an incoherent. <laughs> but I was reading philosophy and they'd say, tell us about that philosophy. And I would give a philosophy and then one guy would be like, you need to get laid. You know, um, you know, this is when I'm 15 or 16 years old. Like, and, uh, and he was probably right, you know, um, and, uh, but it was just a very, uh, it was a very funny, um, it was very funny like that. Like I had that, but that, you know, that opened up a, a, a like a door to me. So it, like, even though those like, there was still separate seating. There, there was integration still. Like there was, there, there, there was sort of interaction, um, and you know, and it, and um, so I, I don't know. I think um, I think so much of this, and you've heard this before, David. I mean, I think so much of this is personality driven, not so much race driven. Um, and I say that once again, looking at my own life, I can I can remember this tremendous desire to engage the larger world, whether that be in junior high school or high school. In, in college, all of my roommates were Jewish. In law school, all of my roommates were Jewish until I discovered black women. But uh, I, I would have, I, I lived in Sammy, uh, the Fred house. In Sammy Houston. house? Yeah, uh -huh. that's right, that's right. And so, um, <clears throat> so, so, but I think that's a personality thing because I can tell you, um, I know people for whom that's not the case. My my son, for example, um, I mean, he's he's engaged to larger world, but he took it upon himself to revitalize the chapter of Alpha Alpha at um, college, Arizona. That's a black fraternity, which his great grandfather was a member of, and he and 
he embraces blackness as the cultural sense of self um, more than I do. So it's kind of yeah. interesting. But, but by the way, my son, who's 24, uh -huh. yes. um, at age 11, he uh, he discovered uh, Smokey Robinson and started singing, okay? okay? And it turns out that his voice is a soul voice. He's an R&B singer. Oh, okay. Um, and um, and that's how he sounds. Like you, if you if you heard it, I mean, he's a, he's a he's a musician. He went to Berklee yeah. College of Music when he was in high school. Um, he 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 told the story. He, there were, he was he did a volunteer project for inner city project, and there were uh, and they were they were working with young black kids in very uh, like you know in in, um, in tough areas and so forth. And he loved the experience. And one of the reasons why he loved it so much. Is that what his his Jewish friends got him to sing, and they couldn't believe like that there was this like probably in their view like white kid who 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 could who sounded like Stevie Wonder and um and then and then they would do these rap competitions and he's like a, a mad extemporaneous mm. rapper like he could just and and they were like oh my god maybe and the girls would go crazy over him and everything <laughs> like that because of it and and so again like you know I mean. I, he went to a Jewish day school. The kid graduated, went to 12 years of a Jewish day school. Right, right, right. Um, if there was, a, there, you know, so it's just interesting. I, I totally agree with and relate to that personality idea. Like, I, I can't go along with wokeness if I tried. Because I think something, in, if, yeah, because in my brain, my brain says that's not true. And, um, and if my brain says that's not true, I ain't going along with it. I'm, yeah. a, you know, yeah. and and, and you are a dissident, I, um, my friend. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I was born that way. Um, right. my, my my wife is really into Myers Briggs, and I talked to Jennifer about this. Like, yeah, and um, and there are like, um, and and the INTP group that she's an introverted, intuitive thinking and judging, um, that she's on Facebook. There is not a single woke person in the group. Um, and if some and it's and, and somehow they're part of it's it, somehow that personality type is. Fiercely independent, doesn't like to be told what to think. Yes. Um, yes. Um, you know, it's very stoic, by the way. It's a very stoic persona. Mm -hmm. And um, and they and you tell them to to that they should see the world a certain way, they'll be like, get get out of here. Right. Um, you right. know, right. <laughs> right. So right. I think that's, that's that's there's a big part, untold story. Like we sh we should write a book about that someday. Like, what is your I, there's a little bit of it in the righteous mind by Jonathan Haidt. Um, about mm -hmm. that, and I, um, but I, I would love to sort of explore that in writing and think. But like, maybe some of this is like is really embedded in our personality types. Well, right, right. And to take a step further, perhaps the imposition of wokeness is actually oppression based upon personality. It is. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah. So, sometimes yeah. when you're not, when, when you're that, and that's where oppression comes. Like, look, I grew, I'm, I'm an ADD guy. Right. Like, and, and I, I have to tell you like, and, and I might be different now, but growing up in like the seventies, the teacher thought you were a freaking dumbass. Okay. And, and cause you couldn't pay attention to, to the lesson at the time and treated you like a dumbass. That was a sort of oppression that I, that I felt that, that right. if, and if, if you don't have that, 
then you don't know what that's like. That's lived experience there. Right. Um, and so that's why I'm not completely dismissive of critical theory, because I do think it can it can see things that that, that it does matter. Like there are mm -hmm. there is a critical theory analysis that 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 does matter. And I do think like if you're of a personality type that's not willing to accept a majoritarian view just because you think it's wrong. Right. I mean, and then people are telling you, you must think about it. There, there's right. a level of oppression you exist about. Right. That. Like right. from your own community, from me, maybe you in the black community, me in the Jewish community, right. uh, you know. Well, there's um, another intersectional dimension, right? Personality. Right. <laughs> right. It is. It is. They don't want to. They don't want to welcome that into the intersectional club. Unfortunately. Well, um, you know, maybe they'll have to. It's an immutable characteristic. <laughs> right. It's immutable. They won't see it that way, but it is. Uh, uh, you know, we, you are, Wink and I are big into this. We only differ by, we are I and F and I am J and he is P. Right, right. Uh -huh. Yeah, but I David. E N T P. Yeah. Got it. Um, David's the extrovert the of this group. Yeah. The debater. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not right. an extreme extrovert, extrovert. Like my wife is as very much like an introvert, yet. You know, I don't mind hanging out at home. You know, I don't have to be with a lot of people all the time. Like my extreme extroverted friends who always have to be out and about in clubs and you know whatever. Yeah. I'm not. That's not me either. You know, um, but I but I can't live, and I decide about I can't I could not be married to an F or an SF. Oh really? It's mm. an SF because unless the part if because what I realized was that. I will diagnose problems in a relationship through sort of a thought process. And mm -hmm. it's hard for me to relate to somebody who takes a long time to emotionally process things and, and it causes conflict. Mm -hmm. It's not that that's not an important function. Like I need to be around Fs in the workplace and everything yeah. else. But I think as my primary partner in life, mm -hmm. I don't think I mix well with somebody with a really strong F or SF. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Deep. Very so I don't, deep. I can't. I can't solve problems with him. And it turns out that if you look at my my wife and I of our of our Myers Briggs scores, we are actually a hundred percent compatible, even though we fight like crazy sometimes. Because because ultimately the thinking function is um, is is a place of commonality, and that the others are actually even though they're, they're different valences, they're, they're compatible with each other. Like mm -hmm. we can bring out, yeah. Like I can bring, I can say, listen, sweetie, you've got to give that presentation at work. Okay. You got, you got to give that, even though that's not, you, you don't want to, you got to do it. Um, and she can say to me, um, you know, stop, think, don't get too enthusiastic about X, Y, and Z until you've really thought it through and slow me down. Mm. Um, so, so, but, but, but the thinking and feeling part, I, I, um, I don't think works well in a relationship, and that's actually what Myers Briggs found in their research too. Really interesting. Interesting. Oh, maybe that's why Wink, because Wink and I are the feelers. True. Okay, maybe now. That's why, maybe that's why Skylar is. Oh my e, God! What E? <laughs> is she a thinker? E S T J. Yeah, I think Blaine's a thinker too. Yeah. yeah. So now we've got to rethink. Thanks, David. You just like Thanks, David. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there are books on. There are books. On, no, but you guys can be compatible in your own way. Like I, when I'm around another ENTP, I'm like bouncing off the wall, happy. Like you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But I'm not sure that I would be. 
I would like that person should be my business partner or my my the the, the person I'm married sure. to. Um, and, and that way, I think it might be we might reinforce some bad things. But well, I do get yeah. along with it really well. Well, that's I like what I was him. saying. I think that I think you just made Wink and I realize um, we 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 now we have to psychoanalyze our our both of our personal like not relationship with each other but with our others. <laughs> right, right, right. We didn't realize yeah. that the TF was so. <laughs> Right, 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 right. right. Um, you know, yeah, that, I, it's very funny. Helen Pluckrose is a, is an INTJ, and a lot of Redstone, who I worked with very closely, is an INTJ. And I say, and, and you know, and I recognize those qualities from my wife. Like it's a very similar thing. And I was like, now I know why I hate you both. Like, uh, like you know, like a, a funny way. Like I actually love you, but but you know, why you make me mad? You know, yeah. um, you know, because but. Uh, it's it's a but you know it's it, but that person you know they're they're so they're so they're, in some ways it's it's a very predictable predilection like I'm stop t- don't tell me what to think and don't get too close to me while you're at it you know <laughs> right, right. right anyway it's great to talk to you all thank you for the honor of uh, being of interviewing me it was a lot of fun sure uh, yes it was all right bye you guys right. take care yeah. bye hey bye bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes for links to source material and to our website where you can find what each of us is reading every week. Different news with different views. If you have a topic that you would like us to explore, drop us a line. And join us next week as we say Hold My Drink and the conversation gets real.